A lot has happened in the last few weeks around here, at least in the life of our community. On June 25th, just a couple weeks ago, we had our last ever worship gathering at 2100 Broadway. It's a great time of, of celebration and looking back and reflecting with each other. And then just last week, we gathered here and we did a, a service of consecration over the land and over the spaces in the building, and we prayed over them and for uh, CTK Downtown, who also meets here, and just uh, that God's blessing would continue to rest on this place as we now uh, share it. But today, I'm excited to kind of get back to a normal Sunday. Is there ever a, a normal Sunday? I don't know, but uh, kind of excited to get back to just preaching the Word. And um, back in June, we, we left off in the Gospel of Mark in the sixth chapter, and that's where I'm going to pick up uh, on today. And the passage that I'm going to be preaching on is one of those passages that is it's the only pre-resurrection passage that is in all four of the Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. It's an amazing story of the compassion, power, and identity of Jesus. And each Gospel in the New Testament tells that story a little bit differently. And my, my hunch is that each Gospel writer is trying to highlight a different emphasis from that story. So let me give you an example. In John's Gospel, the emphasis is on Jesus as the bread of life. So he goes out into the wilderness with a group of Israelites, just like Moses did back in the Exodus story. And when Moses was in the wilderness and the people were, were hungry, Yahweh provided manna, bread from heaven and quail. And in a similar way, when Jesus brings Israelites out into the wilderness, John tells us that, that Jesus provides the bread of life for them. And so John is presenting the identity of Jesus as God in the flesh. In Matthew's gospel, we have the same exact story with a few little nuances, uh, but he emphasizes that even when we don't have much to offer, even when we only have five loaves and two fish to feed an overwhelming crowd of 5,000 people, Jesus can work with that. He has more than enough resources for us. In Luke's gospel, again, we have the same story, but what seems to be emphasized is the way that Jesus apprentices his disciples. The emphasis seems to be that there's this problem of hungry people. Jesus could have solved that problem with the flick of his fingers. Instead, the emphasis is on, hey, you give them something to eat. Let me work in and through my disciples to do God's work. And here in Mark's gospel, we have the same story, but what seems to be emphasized in Mark's version of the story is a really nice comparison between two stories about banquets or food. Two stories about what it means to be king, and Mark encourages us to make a choice between the worldly version of a king and the way that Jesus is described as a king. Now, we just heard a beautiful reading from Ruby on um, the story of Herod and his horrible banquet from Mark 6, 14 through 32. Herod's banquet, as we heard, results in injustice and in the death of a righteous man, John the Baptist, who just so happens to be Jesus' cousin. In the narrative, Jesus has just heard the news that his cousin has been killed 
And at the same time, his disciples are just returning from this incredible mission trip where Jesus had sent them out and empowered them to preach the kingdom of God and to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And they are just, Jesus, you, it's amazing. You'll never guess what happened. And he, they're, they're reporting back to Jesus. Jesus is sad. And he says, hey, let's pull away. You guys are coming back off an intense season. I need to go mourn in grief. Let's pull away and go off by ourselves. As we'll see, Jesus' plans get quite interrupted. I think I have a Bible, and I put it down here. If you're falling asleep, you could stand if you want or not. Um, but... <laughs> That's how I know. Oh, no one's falling asleep. That's great. Okay, so I'm going to read the story now that just right on the tail of, of, um, of John's execution. The people saw them, saw Jesus and his disciples pulling away on their own. And many recognized them. And they ran there together on foot from all the cities, and they got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw that a large crowd was there, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate. And it's already late. Like, send them away so that they can go out into the surrounding countryside and into the villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus answered them and said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go spend 200 denarii, that's like two-thirds of a year's wages, to buy these people something to eat? And he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, we have five loaves and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups. So the people sat down in groups of 100s and 50s. He took the five loaves and the two fish. He broke the loaves and he kept, he looked up toward heaven. He blessed the food, he broke it and he kept giving it to them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish, and there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. 5,000, that is a lot. As I mentioned before, this story, in very similar form, occurs in all four of the Gospels. I've preached this text out of Matthew, out of Luke, and out of John in years past. This is my first time preaching it to you, at least, in Mark's Gospel. And the way I'm going to frame what I'm about to say next is how I believe Mark is framing it for us. And I think he wants us to compare these stories of two different banquets of two different kings and to compare and contrast these types of rulers. As always, Mark is going to encourage us subtly, but not so subtly, to make a choice. 
Which one of these ways will you live? Which one of these kinds of kings will you follow? And for the sake of clarity, I'm going to compare and contrast these two banquet stories using four categories. And so Torn's going to throw those up on the screen. In case you're a note taker, you're that type of personality, you've got sermon notes, uh, you can write down these categories. And the first category is we're going to compare two kings, right? We're going to compare two types of kings. We're going to compare two different types of communities or audiences uh, that, that these kings invite to their banquets. We're going to invite two different menus. You'll notice that there's two different things, two different types of food talked about. And the fourth category is we're going to, we're going to uh, compare and contrast two depictions of power, how power is used. And so that's going to be kind of my rubric for going through this, if, if you care to take notes and write those headings down. Uh, and so we're going to start with these two kings. We're going to start with Herod. Now this gets confusing really fast, this Herod character, because this is not the Herod that is in like the Jesus birth stories. You know, Herod the Great who like had all those little kids who was born, or the little boys murdered who were born around Jesus's time. That dude was Herod the Great. He was a puppet king over all of Galilee, and he was long dead by the time Jesus was an adult and ministering. And so the Herod we're talking about here is, is his like relative, Herod Antipas. Now what, what the deal is, is that Rome actually owned all this land, but they were just smart enough to know, you know, people don't like us very much. So let's prop up at least people with some Jewish blood in them, uh, some, maybe people with some claim to some sort of royalty, and we'll prop them up and they'll do whatever we really want, but maybe the people, the native people there will respect them more. And so they divided Herod the Great's land into four sections, and all of these different Herod dudes are in charge of it. So there's a Herod Antipas, he's the guy in our story. There's his half-brother, another Herod, Herod Philip, and that Herod Philip was named or married to a lady named Herodias. Like Herod is just everywhere. So that's not confusing. Um, the interesting thing about this Herod Antipas guy is he wasn't a real king at all. He's sort of a regional ruler who only had power, again, because the Romans sort of propped him up and made him a puppet ruler uh, to do their bidding. Regardless of his actual title, what really matters about this King Herod Antipas is his character. And Herod's character was sorely lacking. This guy was the definition of unethical. Uh, he was already married to a lady, and then he fell in love with his half-brother's wife, Herodias. Now, here's the weird thing. So he, he sends his, his current wife away, and which is illegal because there was no reason for that. Uh, and then he, uh, he takes his half-brother's wife, Herodias, who was also in love with him. Uh, but here's, a, here's an interesting twist. Uh, she's also his niece. So the uncle falls in love with his niece, who is married to his half-brother, and they get together and move in together. It's kind of crazy. Not very ethical. Herod Antipas sends his wife away, shame, uh, in shame, steals his half-brother's wife, who's his niece, which, by the way, she brings this little girl with her, and that's, now her uncle is her dad. So, wheels within wheels of craziness. Now, unethical Herod. Here's another picture of another king, Jesus. 
Jesus was called lots of things by lots of people uh, who up until this point in the story have been kind of mislabeling him. Some thought Jesus was a prophet. Some hoped he was a military messiah. His family thought he was out of his mind. The religious authorities accused him of being in league with the Satan. And a lot of people just thought he was a traveling rabbi or a Jewish teacher. But Jesus is so much more than that because from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, he's introduced as Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And at the beginning of this story, we see something more. Jesus was just about ready to get some much-needed rest and renewal. He's about to head off with his disciples when he's overcome by the crowds who beat him there to this fortress of solitude he was going. Now, as God in the flesh, the rightful king of heaven and earth, Jesus could have sent these people away, or he could have changed course or like teleported somewhere else um, to the mountaintop or something like that. Um, But he says something that reveals his character and his identity. Actually, Mark tells us something. It says that Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Do you know that in the Hebrew scriptures, Yahweh is described as a shepherd? And the two greatest human leaders of Israel, Moses and David, were also shepherds. In the book of Numbers, chapter 27, Moses asks God to appoint a future successor, a future Messiah, and he, so that, and I quote, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep without a shepherd. The later prophets also point to the promise that a one like a shepherd would come and and rescue and have compassion on the people. And so Jesus sees this shepherdless people And he steps out to act out of his character, out of his identity as the good shepherd. God in the flesh, compassionate and good. Unlike Herod, who has no lasting authority and yet uses what authority he has to please himself, Jesus actually has all the authority to do whatever he likes and yet he uses his position to bless other people, and to shepherd us. And so I ask with Mark, which of these kings would we follow? Let's look at the second category, the community described at these banquets. Herod had the kind of banquet going on at his palace that was common for royalty and uh, uh, civic leaders in the first century. It was segregated. That was a common thing. You had men's side and a women's side. His wife and the wives and daughters of his guests would have been in a completely different room, maybe a completely different building. Mark tells us that the male guests of Herod were his lords and his military commanders. In other words, Herod invited the kinds of people who would further his power politically, financially, and militarily. Uh, He's got to have the military behind him. Jesus, on the other hand, has a mixed crowd. Because there was travel into the wilderness involved, we can assume there's a mixture of genders and ages, but there's also a mixture of social classes. 
You know, in all of these stories where Jesus is talking to crowds, we see uh, the whole social strata there. We find people who are women and beggars and sick. We also find people who are religious leaders and religious scholars, sometimes military people and sometimes civic leaders. But what is so fascinating about how Mark tells this story is that Jesus has the people sit in groups, and they sit in groups of 100s and 50s. Now, that seems like an odd detail, except for the fact that in the the Hebrew scriptures, especially in the Torah, when people are divided into groups like that, like that's a military designation. That's how the people of God, when they're being censused or counted as God's people, would sit in categories like that. And so the idea here is that Jesus is forming a new community around himself, but it's not based on segregation or even ethnicity or gender or social economic status. It's bringing everyone who would trust in him into the fold. And that's really good news because as I, I look at our community, we're quite a, a stratified community right? Uh, We wouldn't all fit at certain clubs in this city or in our world. Uh, We don't all have the same things in common. We don't all have the same education. We don't all have the same background, but somehow in Christ, we are one in Christ. And that is a beautiful mosaic reality. And then there's the detail that there's just so happens to be 12 baskets of food left over, representing, of course, dun, 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 the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is like tipping the hand of forming a new community under him. So I ask you of these two kings, well, I wouldn't even make it into the community of Herod, but would I want to if there's a king like Jesus available to us? As we move to the third comparison, we're going to be looking at, well, at least for me, what's the most important thing about a banquet? What's being served there? Let's talk about food for a minute. We can assume that Herod had some very fine foods for his high-powered guests, but the only thing mentioned, even closely related to food in Herod's banquet, was John the Baptist's head on a platter. It's disgusting. (laughs) All that wealth and decadence and the detail that rises up is that this banquet is corrupt. It is a banquet of evil. Even the little girl, you know, she says, Mom, what should I, what should I ask for when, uh, when Dad over here offered me half the kingdom? She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. It was the girl's idea to put the head on a platter and like parade it around to the party guests. I mean, this is like a twisted family. This is evil. Herod, who represents the corruption of world power, serves up a banquet of derangement and death. Jesus, on the other hand, takes what's available, multiplies it, gives more than enough. You know, it says very specifically in the passage that the people ate and were satisfied. A common person in first century Palestine probably rarely ate till they were actually satisfied. They ate modestly. They ate what they could. But, I mean, assuming there's some teenage boys in that crowd and they were all satisfied, that's, there's a lot of food going on there. That, that, that's a rarity. But the story has so much more meaning to it than just the fact that they ate a lot or that they ate bread and fish. Just look at the details We're introduced to the idea of the people being sheep 
without a shepherd, just like the Israelites were uh, before Moses was called upon to lead them. And when the people were wandering the desert after the exodus and were in need of food, of course, God provided manna and quail for them. Here in our story, there's a crowd desperate for an exodus uh, from their broken lives. They have nowhere to turn, nowhere near enough food. And it's not just like you could just go to the store and and buy some in those days. There's no 7-Eleven nearby. But just like Yahweh provided uh, food in in the wilderness for the Israelites, so here God in the flesh provides for these people. Not just a banquet of food, but a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven breaking in. A new exodus was promised by the prophets when God would come and shepherd his people, provide a heavenly banquet for them. And here in this story, we're seeing a sign of the times as much as it is provision for hungry bellies. It's a statement of Jesus' identity as much as it is a display of his power. Worldly leaders like Herod open their tables to woo people to themselves, but their their path leads to death and deception and always, always leads to compromises. Jesus provides more than a meal. He provides the way of life and exodus from sin and death and corruption and injustice. As we compare these two menus, well, it's a no-brainer, who wants head, but... um, (laughs) the two types of people that provide these banquets, right? That's what Mark wants us to ask. Who are we placing our trust in? Which brings us to the fourth and last comparison of the two banquet narratives. It's the way that these two leaders, these two kings wield their power. We've already seen how Herod used his power to get rid of his his first wife, to steal the wife of his half-brother, But there are other clues to his corruption of power and to the limits of his power. On the one hand, Herod is shown as a regional authority who had John the Baptist arrested without trial and and, and held in prison for who knows how long. That's some level of power. John, as a prophet of God, was publicly denouncing the fact that Herod illegally divorced his wife and then illegally took the wife of his living brother, who happened to be his niece, all of which goes against the way that God designed marriage to be. Herod wanted to shut John up by putting him into prison, but he didn't want to kill him because there's something deep down in Herod that knew that John was right and that he was righteous and that he was holy and that he was good. And he was intrigued by John and he actually liked to listen to him. But at his birthday party, which is the occasion for the banquet in the story, Herod's corruption went to new levels of depravity. Even though the women and men were segregated, he brought his stepdaughter, his little niece, into dance for his male guests. Now, it's likely that this was a seductive dance. In fact, by the way, it pleased all of these peoples to the degree that Herod would actually offer up half of his kingdom, probably almost certain it was a seductive dance. Herod, so happy that his guests are happy, wants to be a big man, and says, oh, you've done so well. 
ask for whatever you want in front of all these guests up to half the kingdom and it will be yours. You know, that's kind of a common thing. Think the book of Esther. There's a very common parallel there. But what's ironic is that Herod actually doesn't have the power to give away even a little bit of land. It's Rome's land. He's just stewarding it. Herod has no real power. The girl, encouraged, excited about this, doesn't know what, what little kid. They think by the use of the word little girl here that at, she could have been as little as 12, as old as 14, not much older than that. That's disgusting. She runs into the next building or to the next room where the women were. She asks her mom, says, here's the, here's the deal. Dad's offering half the kingdom. What do I ask for? Herodias finally gets her revenge. She goes, ask for John the Baptist's head. I want that dude. I'm so sick of him screwing up our lives and talking about his prophetic stuff. Like, just end it. The scriptures tell us that Herod didn't actually want to kill John. But he was under pressure in front of all of his guests because he made this stupid public decree that he was going to give this girl up to half his kingdom. So there he is, supposedly the most powerful man in the room, and ironically, he can't do what he wants. He's crushed under the weight of his own desire to please his powerful guests, to save face in front of them. Herod's weakness, his abuse of power, leads to the murder of a righteous man. Herod uses his power to give people what they think they want, but he doesn't have the wisdom or the courage to give them what they really need. Jesus, on the other hand, has all the power at his disposal he could fix all of the problems of that crowd. He could have had them all gather around and made a big spectacle using fancy words and boom, made some amazing meal. I don't know, prime rib, tacos, whatever. Like it would have been awesome. He could have done it, boom. Instead, what Jesus does with his power, not just in this story, but if you just read the Bible through a fresh lens, like notice how he wields his power. He always wants to work in and through humans. And it's not just a new thing with Jesus. The entire Hebrew scriptures are all about God choosing Abraham, choosing Noah, choosing Isaac, choosing Jacob, choosing flawed people to work in and through. That is the whole point of humans. To be image bearers of God. And so in this story, Jesus chooses to empower other people. The way of God is to take what we have, even when it's a little, and to work with it. To take what often feels inadequate, insufficient, impotent, lacking, as long as we're willing to offer it. That's the key. As long as we're willing to offer it, he can work with it and make something more than we could ever produce in our own strength or imagination. Jesus seeks to work in and through his disciples. And when they lack the faith and the vision in that moment, he shows them what's possible when they trust. The world powers try and please the crowds to satiate us, to subdue us. But Jesus empowers us to give us what we need. And often when he gives us what we need, it is for other people's need. When we're confronted with the injustice of the world that we live in right now, 
and the need of the people of the world that is just so overwhelming, there is not one person in this room who can fix it all. There's not one person in the world who could fix it all. But when we bring what we have through fair, uh, prayer and faith, God shows us his community. He shows us how we can begin to be the answers to those prayers. This week, 125 of us, from toddler age to some of our most wizened people in the church, are engaging in Serve Bellingham. We're going to be giving what we have to God, trusting that He's going to multiply it for His glory and for the good of the people we're trying to serve. And I'm so thankful that Jesus is the kind of king who uses his position to invite us into community, into a community that he provides for, that he empowers not only to do good things in the world, but to give us meaning and purpose as we navigate the world. So I encourage you, as I encourage myself Let's turn away from the seduction of worldly power with its quick fixes and its corrupt compromises and instead align ourselves with King Jesus who lays his own life down that we could have fullness of life. Lord, thank you for your servant Mark and the way that he was faithful to write these stories down and in such a way that causes us to ponder who you are, and how we might respond. Holy Spirit, I pray for the strength and courage and the faith to choose Jesus in those areas where compromise and the easy way that looks so seductive and so appealing when we're so tired and discouraged. Help us to hunger and thirst for you and your way. Amen.